Today, we're talking about uh, the Ranchi school, starting the school, and then about Lahiri Mahashaya. These are the two chapters for which I didn't have any notes, and I didn't make any. Not that it matters that much, but I didn't have them. So, are there any comments or thoughts or questions before we start, or about anything from the week before? Nope. Yes, Cyrus. Um, so, a friend of mine has started reading um, this book. Uh-huh. And he popped into my office at work, and he popped into my office this morning. Uh-huh. And, you know, I think he's read the first chapter. Uh-huh. And he was just amazed. And he wasn't saying that Yogananda wasn't a man of proof. But the stuff was just so beyond anything he ever. Yeah, there is considered. that. Uh-huh. He's saying, well, Cyrus, I read like science fiction. I mean, yeah. he's a big sci fi man. Uh-huh. <laughs> 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 which is why I've given him the book. Uh-huh. Shows, shows interest in that also. So the whole issue of belief. Well, that's why sometimes we give people the path before we give them the autobiography of a yogi. Because, it, I mean, I, I couldn't read Autobiography of a Yogi the first time I tried to read it. Because I just, I couldn't relate to Lahiri Mahashaya materializing in a wheat field on page eight. You know, it just doesn't give you any breather before something is happening. It just seemed like too much to me. So you, you really, um, with all due respect, I mean, maybe he'll feel it. Uh, if people feel it, then it's fine. But if they don't, you actually might do better to give him something, give him the path. Because the path is much more reasoned and much more American and more... Um, uh, you know, just thinking your way to something. I mean, you end up at the same place because you end up at the master and you have to take it, but you, you don't start there. You start more with the meaning of life and how to live it. And so, um, when I finally read Autobiography, really, years later, I couldn't figure out why I hadn't been able to read it the first time. But the first time, I just, it was just too much. It, for me, it was actually less a question of it being not possible is that I just wasn't interested in phenomenal things. I wanted more grounded, more down-to-earth stuff. There's no way you can make anyone believe it or accept it if they don't get it. Yeah. Fun. <laughs> the best thing to do also is not try, just sort of have him take it, have him take it for what he can enjoy and suggest that he just put the rest on hold. I don't know what context he is, if he's Indian or American. I mean. An Indian person would at least understand the concept. An American might not even accept the concept. Yeah, well, then you have a bigger, harder road to hoe. <laughs> Anyone else or comment? Um, you have to appreciate in this whole autobiography of a yogi that it's, it's a seminal book in the truest sense of the word that uh, Master was really laying the groundwork for something that would go on for hundreds and hundreds, thousands of years, no doubt. And it, it's a story, as we've talked about, but it's also a... I hate, I hate to use the word because SRF misuses it so much, but it's really a blueprint. You know, there, it's, just, it's just full of seed ideas that are put there uh, really uh, as much as anything just for the fact that they're seed ideas and they're meant to express... Uh, a certain potentiality that the whole of which, when it all comes together, really gives us a full and a true understanding of what the spiritual path is all about. So on this chapter about um, founding the school in India, uh, Yogananda is balancing out a kind of impression that might exist if, if he wasn't careful, 
which is that the spiritual path is really all about finding your master and just go sitting in his ashram for the rest of your life. There was a, a book about a particular teacher that uh, was popular for a while. Gradually the book fell out of popularity and it was not an important issue, the, the subject matter. But I was never impressed by the book from the first time that I read it because it was all about what the author was going to get from being with his guru. And it was about, you know, this experience and that experience, but the entire orientation was that the author was in it to see what could happen to him. And I, I just knew it was inherently false teaching. Whether the teacher was false or not was less relevant. The disciple did not have a true understanding. And subsequently the author fell out with his own master and, you know, it just all ended in a mess as these things have, you know, when you've watched the cycle for 30 years, you've watched a lot of things happen. You know, in the early heydays, a lot of things came and went. So Yogananda is really wanting us to um, really get the picture of, of what it's really all about. Because years in my master's hermitage make you think, well, I just need to find a master somewhere who's going to tell me what to do. But then he just sort of comes to this point where Sri Yukteswar just kicks him out of the nest, in essence. You know, enough of this training, enough of your sitting around. Now it's time for you, you to do something. And again, also Yogananda uh, strikes a theme, which is an important theme. You know, what is the point of building all these organizations and doing all these things? This isn't really what I'm interested in. And uh, Yogananda maintained that theme all through his life, even though he accepted the necessity of giving some form to what he was trying to do. But he never embraced it um, for any reason except out of a sense of duty. So we have just the right um, level of understanding. And it's a very important question in the West because institutionalism, as the definition of religion, is such a, as what Swamiji such a, calls such a cultural assumption in the West that we don't even recognize it as an arbitrary idea. Um, there, there is such a unity in the Western mind between church and religion and spirituality and religion that we, we don't even know that the two can be torn apart. And yet, lest we become too disdainful of the necessity to bring things to a focus, Sri Yukteswar is the one who tells Yogananda that you've got to do this and that it is necessary and you can't just selfishly hold it for yourself. You have to also package what you're doing in some form that others can also draw from. And then, of course, he adds the caveat, of course, form without spirit is useless. So, so he just defines it just a few sentences. He defines just exactly what is needed. You know, um, the organization is the hive, God is the honey. And the hive is useless without the honey in it. And the form doesn't mean anything unless it really is alive with the spirit. But if it's alive with the spirit, it can be a place that manufactures and nurtures and feeds and then many others can go out. And, you know, Yogananda describes in a matter of a few paragraphs how he totally changes his opinions and goes into a whole um, new point of view and, and offers us this wonderful prayer, may thy love shine forever on the sanctuary of our devotion and may we be able to awaken thy love in all hearts, which really became Yogananda's theme song. And it's the, uh, the beautiful prayer of the devotee. May, may God's love come into me so that I may then also give it out to others because it is in the passing through. And Sri Yukteswar reminds us in a very simple way, where would you be 
if the masters hadn't sacrificed a lot for you. Every week in the Festival of Light we emphasize it. Here then is the fourth and last stage of the soul's long journey where we um, offer back all that is given to us. And um, so also we have this little interplay between Sri Yukteswar about the renunciation and the householder path. You know, even with this idea that was so well established in Yogananda's mind that all he ever wanted to be was a Swami, Sri Yukteswar teases him a little bit here at the last moment and, and dangles in front of his eyes the sort of conventional idea of the comfort of home and family. But it, it's very um, important at least to have the theory in our mind that just as attractive as that idea looks to most people, to the true renunciate, it looks like bondage. And it's, it's, it's worth contemplating, even if one feels attracted um, to, to the householder path and the forming of those relationships, it's also important to recognize the possibility um, that life can go beyond that. Or even if you see that that's where you are for now, that there's a reality that is after it. And it comes from just contemplating continuously and regularly on the deepest level, what is the real purpose of human birth? You know, why are human beings born? What is the reason for our life? And uh, we talk about this so often, but we, we're born with all these um, karmic compulsions that attach us to one another and cause us to create more attachments with one another and this whole vast panorama of relationships which Sri Yukteswar describes in the holy science are really a necessity. He describes it because the process of life is the purification of the heart and the purification of the heart is the purging from, from the human heart all forms of selfishness and self-concern. And because this is very difficult to accomplish, and because this selfishness and this self-concern can hide in the tiny crevices of our heart, and we, we may think that we're free, but we're not really, as Sri Yukteswar describes it, we are compelled to form relationships with one another. Because in the forming of those relationships, and in the intimacy and the responsibility and the vulnerability and the experience that those relationships create, then what is ferreted out of us, what is revealed in our inner nature is the impurities of the heart. And once we find ourselves engaged and uh, locked together in matrimony or in child raising or whatever the circumstances may be, and the rough edges rubbing up against each other and causing us pain, then that pain forces us to deeper and deeper levels of introspection and deeper and deeper levels of renunciation and transcendence until the heart becomes entirely purified. So it's not wrong for almost all of us to follow our compelling desires and, and make these links in our lives. But we have to realize there are means to an end, not an end in themselves. We, we, we experience them because we haven't yet develop the capacity to be that motivated and to experience love so profoundly without putting it into the form. It's the, 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 the interplay here of the, of the paragraphs between the spiritual organization and then the little family form 
You know, these are all ways of taking the infinite and, and putting it into little boxes so we can relate to it better. But then Sri Yukteswar says here and, and later also in the same chapter, he makes this very strong statement. If you forego the normal responsibilities that a person has to society, you can't substitute it with nothing. The, you know, that level of effort and dedication, I remember when we were living as nuns, Swami said to us quite simply, if you decide not to raise children, you have to put out every bit as much energy serving the world and helping to raise the consciousness of the world as any parent would put in raising their own babies. And when you think really of the level of sacrifice and dedication and one-pointed commitment that good parents have toward their children, and you, we have to ask ourselves, you know, am I living at that level um, without the compelling physical necessity of doing it to keep another child alive? And if the answer is no, then we're not justified in our turning our back on that responsibility. Now, it's not really that society needs us to raise children, but it's rather that we ourselves need to demand of ourselves that level of energy if we would attain spiritual freedom. It's a very... Um, I've, been, I've been thinking a great deal about it lately. It's just been in my mind sort of every day. The extraordinary... Um, project that's in front of us of self-realization I was reading, you know, I have a desire to sit down tonight, I just don't have that much energy and I'd just be happier um, uh, I saw a movie last night which it, it, it's a good movie in the sense that it's really well done I'm not sure it's worth seeing because it's too well done and it stays with you a little bit um, it's called for love or country. I don't know if it's a new movie or not. My, my husband, David, really likes true stories. He likes stories that are more tense than I like. Um, but we compromise on true stories because then it's interesting to me. Um, so it was the story of a jazz musician. So the movie was full of a lot of jazz, which I don't particularly care for, but a man named Arturo Sandoval, who became quite well known in the Dizzy Gillespie School of Trumpets. Sharon's nodding her head. He, he lived in Cuba and was essentially trapped in Cuba and had to um, get himself out of Cuba and his family and it's a, it's a very well done story the, the true story of how he got himself out and got his family out and, I mean in essence for, once, once he really saw what was happening for many years, ten years maybe he had to pretend to be a dedicated communist person so that he could win the confidence of the government so that he could go on tour and then bring his family with him and you know, then when he finally got them to that point, then he defected and went on, I guess, to be a Grammy Award-winning winning musician and so on. But I watched the movie, and it, I was very affected by it, and I was thinking just how easy most of us have it, you know, that the, that the only thing that's really compelling us is just sort of the everyday incidences of life. In this country especially, we have plenty to eat, we have freedom, uh, we have mobility, we have opportunity. And all we have is the sort of underlying karmic memory of uh, what the nature of life is and this sort of deep, deeply felt determination to escape from it. I remember speaking to Swamiji once when I was early at Ananda, sort of asking him the question, 
sort of saying essentially that I'd really hardly had an unhappy day in my life. And yet, and I was in my early 20s when I was first arrived there, and yet I had this intense compulsion to escape uh, from this plane of consciousness, whereas in fact my experience of it was, you know, no, no big deal, no problem. And he obviously gave me the obvious answer, which is that we have, we have past life memories. You know, we have, we're born, sometimes you're born in fortunate circumstances because you've suffered sufficiently in the past. You don't need suffering anymore to be an incentive. And at the, and the same time also, the memory of that suffering, which is how I've, I've always sort of understood my own consciousness, the memory of the suffering is so close to the surface that it doesn't take much to sort of remind me to get running again. You know, it's not like it's faded or something like that. That's why movies like that one that I saw last night, even though it was very um, uh, much of a spiritual incentive, it was also, it's a little too painful for my heart to see people suffering like that. And there was nothing, you know, really terrible. It was just the, the circumstances that they had to live in. Well, Yogananda's uh, mandate from Sri Yukteswar is, is really the mandate, you know, it's master to master. Of course, he's speaking, Sri Yukteswar is telling Yogananda why he was born. You know, you are, after all, an avatar and you came here to rescue these people. You need to get on with it. You can't just sort of be hanging around only thinking about yourself. But his, his mandate to Sri Yukteswar is really the mandate to all of us because a great deal of what solidifies our own commitment to spiritual freedom is the necessity constantly to share that ideal with others. You know, at the stage that we're on uh, of our spiritual life, um, Sri Yogananda was very big on passing the truth along. I mean, in his original lessons and so on, he talks about how you should keep many copies of Autobiography of a Yogi on hand so that you can give them away to everyone. Cyrus, your efforts notwithstanding, you know, it's still the right idea. <laughs> you know, that we should always be wide awake and ready um, to pass the truth along. Now, that doesn't mean by any means that everybody we know, or even many people we know, are going to want to hear about Paramahansa Yogananda. Sometimes all they really want is just a kind word and a sweet smile and a, and a little bit of encouragement and a, a tiny bit of reflecting of just sort of anything that um, helps them know where they're trying to go. But the reason we do that is twofold. We do it because it, it reminds us continuously, it's manyfold, but it reminds us continuously of what we're doing and it keeps our energy up and it, it helps us work out our own karma. It helps us... Uh, uh, by helping others, we sort of get that, that flow in motion that both we, we we're blessed by what passes through us and we're also, uh, we become magnets for more. And so then Yogananda describes this tremendous interest he had in child education. And again, Yogananda's starting a spiritual revolution here because certainly one of the wares, one of the places in which you see the delusions of our cultures you know, most profoundly manifested is in the way we educate children. Because we, we pass along in, in such an impressive way the values of our society by what we pass along to our children. And he started his school in India, but his mission was in the West. And it's not talked about very often, but Swamiji mentions it. When Yogananda came to America, he started with a boys' school. 
And he, he, the, at first at Mount Washington, what he had there was a, boy, a, a school for children. Swami talks about the little hut that he lived in at Mount Washington and how whimsically it was constructed and how badly it was constructed because it had been a building project for children. It was, it was part of Yogananda's first effort. Uh, Master realized soon after he was here that the parents were so um, uninformed about the potentiality of self-realization that he couldn't get them at all to give him their children because they had no concept of why. And so he retreated from the idea of children's school and realized first he had to create a generation of educated parents before they would be willing to give their children over. I mean, even here in our school, we work so hard um, to survive because even parents who hold these values are still so hypnotized by the belief that you have to over-intellectualize children even from a very young age and that somehow that's how you serve them. And this, this fear uh, of not providing them with that horribly unbalanced education um, causes them to be very nervous about putting their children in a school like ours. I used to work with the parents on the enrollment cycle, but I, I, I withdrew because it was time for others to take over, but I had to withdraw because my impatience with parents was becoming so profound I, I could really hardly stand it. I, I mean, I was having trouble being civil anymore. My final and last one was, uh, the, the parent, not, not quite in these words, but very close. Well, of course, the children need a loving, supportive ad- a- atmosphere when they're small. But by the time they're in the fourth or fifth grade, they certainly need to suffer. Oh. And you're, you're meaning to say that, you know, you maintain this like positive atmosphere all the way through the upper grades too? Well, certainly there must be something wrong with your school. I mean, it wasn't quite that explicit, but it was very, very close to it. That was practically the last parent interview I had because I couldn't stand it. So, but, but what is more dear to the hearts of parents than the education of their children? So Yogananda throws in this chapter and, and throws in this effort that he made. You know, the schools that he has in India are still going on, but they don't reflect anymore his innovation at all. Um, our, when our school principal, Nitai, has gone over to visit, he said they're just perfectly ordinary schools at this point. They no longer have anything of what Master really started. But the Ananda schools are the innovation. That's where they still really exist. And it's, um, it's also indicative of the fact that Master's concept of what he came to do was very, very broad. And it, it isn't just a sort of simple idea of everybody just sits and meditates. You know, it's, it's a, I mean, what is more revolutionary to society, too, than, than to change the education? If you educate children differently, then you've changed the whole culture. And so he, he also was indicating that, and by doing it in India and then also starting in America, that he wanted a revolution. He didn't want a sort of business as usual where a few souls kind of find this and go hide out. He wanted a revolution. And that revolution is taking place in every aspect of our culture, including the education for children. And then he describes in India, of course, but again, you also have to realize he started with seven students on, on this, in this little place. Of course, within a year, he, he, he was able to establish it quickly. But also, you, you get also a little picture of the fact that even a master, there's a normal process in the way things happen. And over the many years of building Ananda, there's been this constant 
sort of scrambling to sort of make things work and a constant scrambling to generate the finances to make things work and then trying this project and trying that project and some things work and some things don't and some things are at a level of perfection and some aren't. Somebody the other day was sort of wanting to have this serious conversation with me. The specific subject was Sunday school. And you know, it was sort of like as if I needed to be persuaded. Uh, And I just said, look, you know, we've never really um, had the staff or the dedicated individuals to really to create the kind of Sunday school that we really ought to create. We've had a volunteer Sunday school that is actually held together pretty well and has done a good job with the children, but it's not really youth education on the level that we should have it. You know, there's no, there's no big effort to persuade. That's just a fact. But we just do what we can, and we do the best we can, and then slowly by slowly things come together. You know, when Yogananda started school with seven students, he was just starting where he could and making it happen in the way that he could. And then with his dynamic energy, it you know, began to swell and he attracted a better facility and then gradually many hundreds of students and so on. But he also, in the, just these little sentences, also tells you, you know, you, you take whatever energy you have and you build on it. Through the years of uh, Ananda, we've seen Swamiji just do that over and over again. You take whatever energy you have and you build on it. We don't always have the power to build as fast as Yogananda did, but that was, that's the way things are done on this material plane. You don't just snap your fingers and have it happen. You just start with what you have, and uh, then through that, more will come to you. So, Master describes, you know, this balanced education, academic, commercial, um, agricultural. Uh, and, and you can see that that's his idea of what education really is. Uh, and then training children from a very young age in the techniques of yoga. And he makes the mention there of his, you go to exercises in which the children learn to um, control the life force in their body. And he makes the, the reference that the, these are the energization exercises. Without the need for complicated apparatus or sort of, or sort of tiresome exercises, we can uh, make ourselves fit and well merely with the um, expression of the energization exercises. And I, I think it's an important, just a little important reminder that he sticks in there that we shouldn't um, in any way neglect them. Swamiji remarks that in traveling around the world all these years teaching, he finds that people often don't appreciate what they have in the energization exercises and don't really recognize sort of what a gold mine they are. And it, it is, interestingly, Yogananda's original contribution to the science of yoga. I mean, everything else that he teaches is traditional. He, he's, he's repackaged it so that it's a new expression, but it's not a new teaching. But the energization were an original contribution. And he describes them here in the context of his students and describes how you know, his, his students develop these remarkable powers and the, the power to meditate. He also makes the simple statement that his boys, his children, were also meditating regularly and notably. And again, it, he, he's just, we ask the question, can children learn to meditate? And he answers it here in Autobiography of a Yogi, uh, at least if there's a whole cultural setup in which they're trained to do it. That doesn't mean by any means all children can. But still, he just answers all these questions. And then he goes on to tell us this just sort of wonderful story about Swami Pranabhananda and how um, he, uh, just sort of finishing the story, he revisits the yogi Christ of India. 
and fulfills the story about how Pranabhananda had said, I'll see you later with your father. And much later then they come together and his, uh, Master even chides his father a little bit through Pranabhananda. You know, what are you doing to go toward God realization? It was sort of a, uh, it was a funny sort of moment when I was reading that because it's really what he's doing. Although by 1948, I guess his father probably passed away. But uh, it was interesting. Swami Kriyananda asked, Master, if his father was God-realized. And Master sort of laughed a little and said, no, no, he was much too attached to his sons, is what he said. And uh, you even have earlier in there how Master says how his father, you know, had not quite forgiven him for not going into the railway business. And it wasn't until he saw him in the school that he realized he'd made the right choice. I mean, what a, a statement. It's just sort of, you think, Yogananda in the railway business you would expect his father to have more insight than that but uh, again you, you have all these little vignettes of, of human nature and here's his father even his own father who, who it, it, it takes him time to appreciate what he has in his son by the time Yogananda wants to leave for America his father impersonally as a disciple of Lahiri Mahashaya you know, hands him a huge amount of money and his father's money really financed his trip and really made it possible for him. And he did that very impersonally, not as Yogananda's father, but as a disciple of Lahiri, so he would send the message. But the reconciliation is implied. And again, also you have um, so many just between the lines implications of Yogananda simply defying his father in a culture when that was not commonly done. But Yogananda was not going to marry. And, and they, uh, they talk in, in the other chapter, you know, three times in Yogananda's life they tried to marry him off. And three times he just simply refused to cooperate. And even he was a young man, he was subject to his parents, but he just absolutely refused to cooperate. His father wanted him to go into this business, he absolutely refused to cooperate. He just did what he knew he had to do. And so you, you, you get implied in all of this lessons in Dharma as to what's correct and what isn't correct. And, uh, and then we have Pranabhananda sort of showing up here, and we have the, just so many aspects of him just uh, closing up the, the, the stage of his life in which he was readily accessible through you know, living in the, in the city area. And then he's going to take his disciples out to this country ashram. And there's just this, um, a few of you have been to India, and you just sort of have this, there's just a potentiality in that country that's just understood of these ashrams in the Himalayas where, where it's just, it, it was as if, as if there are lots of Anandas. You know, let's just imagine that there's lots of them and everybody sort of understands that one of the options that you can do is that you can just go off and live in one of these little communities. You know, you can just decide that that's really what your life is about and then there's an all-pervasive understanding that that's, that's a genuine option, that's something you can do and that spiritual teachers are just, just exist. Of course, there's cynicism in every culture. And in the last chapter that we were dealing with, we were dealing with Yogananda's own brother-in-law, who was so worldly as to not appreciate his saintly sister. So it's, it's merely to be Indian does not mean to be your spiritual, but there's a greater understanding of it. And so Pranabhananda just sets up this little scene where he has the seeds and he's going to go off and just have this little ashram and he'll just, they'll all live very, very simply. 
and and you 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 have these little concrete buildings very plain rooms because the indians don't accumulate it's so interesting when you go um, and of course again there's materialism everywhere but you even go into very comfortable indian homes and you just find a, just a, a fraction of the quantity of material goods you know there's just it's just so much more barren i uh, um, indian people who come to this culture are just astonished sometimes by just the sheer quantity of material things that people have especially children you know they'll go into a child's room and the child will have a whole room to himself and it will be full of the child's own possessions and it's just uh it, it's just like why would a child own this much stuff why would anybody own this much stuff but why especially would a child own this much stuff and you sort of we we set it up right from the start that we just raise our children with this sort of same sense of we just accumulate and you see in so many indian homes even often there's not that much furniture because if you sit on the floor indian kitchens are often at floor level um there's just a a a a a burner or something but it's all, not always i mean there's western style is more common but things are often at floor level so there just isn't a lot of stuff around and uh you see these very simple ashrams where they grow a little food and they just spend their time with the guru they're done you know the guru is done and the people there are done with the whole phase of life that yogananda is talking about where you have to do all this raising a family and so on and and once again even though it's not necessarily the life that we live it provides a very convenient measure for the life that we're living and and we should always be measuring this life against a life of simplicity and renunciation and whenever we feel a sense of lack or uh, oppression or something just think how simple it could really be master says that great economic hard times will come to this country and we'll we'll really get back to living life um in terms of necessities instead of in terms of this overwhelming um suffocating abundance that has really become our lifestyle and the freedom of that will be so um fabulous for all of us it's just it's so uh anyway it's so liberating yogananda says to not be owned by what you own um but then you have this story of pranabananda and his his spiritual freedom and you have the expectation of the disciples there he is he sets up these ashrams and you know this is where he's going to be and they're just everybody gets these little thoughts in their mind of how things are going to be and then pranabananda knows that he's he's finished it's over he's received his message from divinity that this particular incarnation is done and it's just again these are such it's just such a wonderful thought to just what if you just knew and last week when we were talking about roma master sister she just woke up in the morning and just knew this was her last day on earth But what if you woke up in the morning and knew it was your last day on earth or knew that next week you know you're going to have a, a big party and a meditation and that'll be it uh even if we can't actually do it just think of the freedom of knowing that and knowing that you're not really going anywhere you're just going into the next room and just sort of into the next chapter of your chapter book you're not really leaving anything i was talking to someone who was feeling quite distressed and we were not seriously but we were having a, a a conversation about suicide 
I mean, it wasn't a sense that I wasn't trying to talk someone out of suicide, but we were discussing suicide, which had been an attractive option to the person at the time. I said, the biggest problem with suicide is it doesn't work. (laughs) If it worked, you know, it wouldn't be a bad idea, but it doesn't work. Nothing happens. You know, every, every ounce of misery that you have, you still have. You just, you know, painted a different color. Um, and that's the problem with suicide. And if you, you do it for a long time, and then you realize it doesn't work, and you stop doing it. That's how they say, in any case. But uh, uh, it's different to just know that your life is done, and you're just going on. So Pranamananda has the, did this just this wonderful party. Everybody's there, and all his people are there. And then by the power of the second Kriya, which great yogis use to leave their body. Isn't it just thrilling to imagine having that much power? And, just, and, it's the, and again, it's what I was saying at the beginning. It's the only way out. There's just no other way out. Because until we gain absolute mastery over our consciousness, we're always going to suffer. And that mastery has to extend to the realm of death, or else it's not sufficient mastery. We're still vulnerable. To be so fearless, and then have his disciples say again, the human heart is so, um, it's just so powerful. Oh, Master, don't do it, don't do it. And Pranabhananda says, don't be selfish. I've been serving you for so long. And again, you get this picture. This is the great sacrifice of the Masters. You know, I've given up all my spiritual freedom all this time to help you all, to slow down the... Um, the natural flow of the saint's consciousness in order to relate, to take on the burden of human life, to, to, to manifest things slowly through the material plane, to, to, in, to suffer with all of humanity through all the suffering that they go through. You know, Master often wept for his disciples. And it, it wasn't because he, he believed their suffering was real, but he, know, he knew that to us it was real. And he, he wept out of compassion for watching us suffer. And so when the disciple says to Pranavananda, Oh, Swamiji, don't go. He says, don't be selfish. I've done enough for you. Now it's done. Then he throws in this intriguing thing. I'll be for a little while in the infinite. Then I'll come back. And shortly after, I'll go to live with Babaji in the Himalayas. And Master sort of puts that in also to just remind us of the concrete reality of Babaji. That, it, that it's really a real thing. And then Swami uh, Yogananda says later, I found out from Keshavananda that he did shortly after he was born, which probably means even as a child. You know, he informed his parents, I'm not really yours. Uh, Chaitanya, uh, Shankaracharya, I mean, who was a great, I believe it was Shankaracharya, who was such a great sage, he wanted to leave home at the age of six. And do I have the right name? I'm pretty sure I have the right name on this. But anyway, he wanted to leave home at the age of six, and uh, I might have the wrong saint, but the story is true. Uh, maybe it was. But anyway, his, his mother wouldn't let him, and so he, he jumped into a pool where there were crocodiles, and he was going to let the crocodile take him. And he said to his mother, one way or another, you're going to lose your son. And she said, you may leave home, my child, you may leave home. <laughs> so he rescued himself from the animal and and then left of renunciation. Now just think, 
of the power of your spiritual consciousness that you can carry it through as a child and that you come back and you don't even get caught by childhood but you just know that you were born for renunciation that was uh, uh, of course the avatars but John the Baptist was that way also at a young age went out into the wilderness and here we have Pranabhananda at a young age and, and you see children who are very uh, spiritually inclined it's sort of an interesting question that we've all as a, as a community at Ananda have asked ourselves and it's too soon to say um, because the Bhagavad Gita says that to be born into a family of yogis is, is, is the fruit of the karma of having worked very hard to be a devotee so we have these children who've been born at Ananda and been born into families of yogis and um, they're all fine people but we don't so far have a sterling record of them all embracing the spiritual path and I, I just keep thinking to myself you know these births are hard to get because yogis don't have that many children we can't just be wasting them on ordinary nice people <laughs> and we also don't uh, but you don't yet know what the yogis of the next generation will look like you know that we, that we don't know what the Dwapara Yuga yogi will be like will they really uh, look like world renouncing renunciates or will they look like successful businessmen and artists and you know will they be Ananda devotees will they find something else and it just takes too many years to know you know the first generation is getting into its late 20s and uh, they're sort of hovering around the edges but we just haven't really seen what's going to happen yet um, but still it's, it's just an interesting it, again the autobiography just lays all these seed thoughts into your mind wouldn't it be marvelous to be so fixed on the spiritual path that even if you have to reincarnate you'll reincarnate knowing what you came to do you have stories of Teresa of Lisieux, for example who was always wanting to be a nun from when she was very little you have the story of Uma Mata who's a, uh, one of the uh, older nuns at SRF she was eight years old when she met Master her father was a, d- a disciple and he would go every week to hear Yogananda speak and she just begged him to take her and finally when she was eight he did and she sat on the stairway of the balcony at eight years old and was totally magnetized to him and by the time um, she was like 12 or 13 she managed to enter the monastery maybe she had to wait a little longer because her mother resisted sending her so young but she just knew that this was just what she wanted there was nothing else that interested her to raise new iman I mean these are all great saints but what power to to have that to know at such a young age that this is what you want now in our culture you can know that without having any any words for it because in our culture you could just have a a mindset that orients you away from society as a whole but you don't have a name for it when you're young whereas in the Indian culture there can be a name for it right away so I love the story I just love the picture I love to play out the picture of Pranabhananda at six or seven saying goodbye mom (coughs) goodbye dad I'm off to the Himalayas you know was he born an orphan did his parents die you know there's no and the fact that he's just up there with Babaji probably even now and what does that feel like did he arrive as a child did he stay as a child did he arrive as a teenager is he still a teenager I mean it's just such fun to think about and it also just takes you out of Silicon Valley and 
riding your car down Highway 101 and gives you something else to think about. But, but in the autobiography of a yogi it says too that Babaji is aware of the complex nature of Western civilization and the unique challenges it poses for our God realization. You know, today I had was on jury duty and not that I'm going to be on a jury but I had to sit in a courtroom and I have to sit in a courtroom a little while tomorrow until it's over. And I just... It, watching this very, very stilted legal system go, I just think, what a strange world we live in where all this stuff happens and yet underneath it there's this divine drama and Babaji's aware of the complex nature of it. You know, it's a very, it's a very explicit statement. It's not, that's why uh, when we founded our community here, Swamiji, the, at the dedication service, so Swamiji talked explicitly about Babaji's involvement in the founding of our community. Because it's just the right picture. Because see, Babaji has the plan. It's just the right picture that it's not too radical. It's showing people that you don't have to, uh, you, you don't have to, that, that, that the, the power of the practice of Kriya can be integrated, can be, can be begun right where you stand. You know, that you don't have to uh, throw everything away before. It's just that promise from the Himalayas back at the beginning. You know, I can't give up everything, but yet I still have this deep desire to do this. And right in the middle of really one of the most materialistic, but nonetheless um, open-minded and advanced areas on the planet, um, we just have this little enclave of otherwise ordinary people doing something so remarkable. And if you were Babaji just making a very practical plan, you can see how this would fit in so well, can't you? Because he understands how complex it is. So we get a little apartment building and just start this, this revolution uh, in a way that doesn't hardly show. It kind of sneaks up on him from the back. <laughs> Fascinating, isn't it? And even here now, you know, starting just as Master did, the, the right education of children get the image into people's minds that this is what we're doing and this is how we're going to do it. Amazing, huh? So, well, that's that chapter. Any comments or questions? The next chapter is this story about Kashimoni, which is uh, Lahiri Mahashaya's wife. Um, and it just... You, don't, you just don't know what to think about these stories. Here's Lahiri Mahashaya, and he's um, an, an avatar. And, and to, to have you tell the story and have even her tell the story, you know, he just marries this woman and lives with her, and she doesn't even know what she's got in him for a long period of time. And I, you, <coughs> I've never heard this story told in any other way. You know, it's, I don't have like a... Like a another side of this story. And she, she tells, Kashimoni tells this whole story of, uh, you know, suddenly realizing who Lahiri is and then sort of apologizing for not appreciating and why couldn't I have taken Kriya sooner? And then Lahiri says, well, I've been subtly working out your karma for you. And so in some way or on some level, she has this <coughs> great good fortune to be Lahiri Mahashaya's wife and be aided in her spiritual progress. And, and then she talks about 
from from the night of this great vision you know he never he never slept in my in the bedroom or in the bed with me ever again in fact he never slept again <laughs> it's just it's just like this was a big change <laughs> you know from from mr and mrs happy couple and this was something else <laughs> it's just you just I, I have, and I, I can't say, I've never asked Swamiji about this. I may if I get an opportunity um, when I see him later this year, but I would like to ask him more about this. He doesn't himself know that much, but he, in the sense that he, I, did he ever meet her? Was she still alive when he went to India? Can anyone remember? Because this was 1936, and Swami was there about 20 years you know, 56, 20, 20. She might have been awfully old. Yeah. Yeah. I know that... Shabindu yeah, Lahiri, I think, knew her briefly. Shabindu is Lahiri's uh, great-grandson. So it was his great-grandmother. So it's possible to know your great-grandmother. But he didn't know her for very long, just very briefly. Um, I was just trying to, what I was actually asking myself was what direct knowledge would Swamiji have of her in this situation. But obviously she was a profoundly saintly person. And, you know, he also makes this reference, she took me upstairs in, into a very small, or does she say a tiny room, where they had lived before, where they lived together, to a very small room where she had lived, with, where for a time she had lived with her husband. Um, Lahiri Mahashaya's house is cramped. Um, you know, a few of you have been there. It's, it's very hard to get into it at all now because the elderly relative, the grandson of Lahiri Mahashaya, uh, Banmali um, Lahiri, is not well and he lives with his son who lives in Calcutta. There's no commitment in the family to maintain the house. So the house is mostly locked with a care, care, caregiver. But before then, you would be able to go into the door. And it's like in the Indian style, especially in the old part of Varanasi, right on the, there's a very narrow street, and all you have is a wall and a gate that goes into a courtyard. You don't really see any house. You, just, you can sort of see the wall of the house, but it, it's not a neighborhood sort of situation. And you go in, it's, a very, it's just a very small courtyard, and the house goes straight up three stories like this, but it's a small house. When he says a very small room, you can you just sort of get this picture of what it it was a very small room. But again, it's such a, a much more simple picture. Here Lahiri Mahashaya was the channel for the you know the restoration of Kriya. This enormous he played this enormous role in the in the redirection of the spirituality of the age. And yet he played it from this little house in Varanasi with this wife and they had their children and they sort of had this little scene this sort of very traditional sort of nothing about the form uh, would clue you in at the beginning that anything really remarkable was going to happen here it all came out from the inner consciousness and then but then she has these you know this remarkable experience waking up in the night and seeing him surrounded by angels and having him uh, you know, she goes into this ecstatic state and 
realizes that all this time she's been living with this God-realized soul and she just imagined that he was really her husband. I mean, it's quite a story. And I, I just, I don't have anything, I can't do anything with it except just marvel at it. And then she talks about how delusion snatched her up again. And so now he never sleeps in her room anymore. He just sits downstairs and it's all over. So she has this um, dual experience. On the one hand, <clears throat> she has this fabulous revelation. She's initiated into Kriya. She realizes all that has happened, <clears throat> but at the same time she loses all the comforting little systems that she had in place before. And even as she describes, actually becomes anxious about money. But, but the, in telling these stories, the masters are describing all of our delusions to us, aren't they? You know, just here it is. He's revealed to her this divine reality, and yet still she clutches over here. Um, there's the beautiful song that we sing sometimes, Where Has My Love Gone? And it's the story of, Where has my love gone? Long are the nights. Now that she's left me, dimmed my delights. And it's the story of the devotee's romance with Divine Mother, with the Divine Beloved. And there's one verse in it that says, Strange how when love calls, memory stays, calling across the tides of our days. And those lines mean, I asked Swami sort of to explain them to me once, but what, what they mean is that even when we have this incredible image of divine reality, all the um, attachment and identification with the ego still stays with us. Strange how even when love calls, memory stays with us. The memory of the ego stays. And it keeps calling us back to what we used to know. And so we have uh, Kashimoni, the story here of this great upliftment. And now she has become one of her husband's disciples. She's scarcely his wife anymore. And she manages to find a moment where she can say to him, you know, the wife always chooses the moment. What about us? What about me? You're spending all your time. Aren't you going to take care of us? What will become of us? And, and Lahiri, wouldn't husbands everywhere love to have this kind of power? He just disappears. <laughs> now that's an answer for you, isn't it? <laughs> she sees him floating on the ceiling. He disappears. How can a nothing like me provide for you? And you have also this sort of theme through Lahiri's life which Master re-emphasizes at the end, is this theme of humility, of just this complete lack of pretense, this complete lack of any kind of... Uh, he, 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 made, he made no form for what he did. It was just entire, entirely the simplicity of his consciousness. And so again, he says, how can a nothing like me? That was just his view. And again, um, I know I was talking about this last week when I was here, this realization that the only freedom is in the total realization that we don't exist. That there's, there it simply is no self to be worried about. All of our suffering comes from this idea that there's a self that we have to worry about. And, and, and it's a true experience. We can't just be presumptuous and therefore irresponsible. I mean, it's a very fine line. You know, we are profoundly identified with ourselves, and therefore, if we just don't do, any, don't do anything practical, it's not really spiritual because we haven't earned the right to be that free. But everything that we do has to be 
a recognition that when we finally really identify with the divine, genuinely and powerfully identify with the divine, then there's no self to suffer anymore. It's just as simple as that, and that's the only time we'll ever be free. And so Lahiri shows us the, the realized, what that really looks like. You know, you want me to do something for you, but I don't even exist. There's just this infinite flow of which we are all a part. But then also he's so kind to her. He reassures her, don't worry. One of my spiritual children will take care of you. Because you see, for him it wasn't presumption. It wasn't Lahiri just simply not knowing what else to do, so he's going to claim that God's going to take care of him when in fact that the test might be for many of us to be very practical and figure out how we're going to take care of it with God's help. But Lahiri had the, had the clear knowledge that it would be taken care of and was even able to articulate exactly how it would be taken care of because God had told him. Do you understand the difference? It's a very important line that we have to learn to follow. But every time self-preoccupation rather than right action interrupts the flow of our peace, we need to get back into right action and out of self-preoccupation. That, that's a sort of, these are, the, these are the themes that are roiling around in my head a lot lately, just sort of trying to figure out how to, how to escape from this wheel of samsara, as the Buddhists call it. You know, this just a sort of endless cycle of birth and death and suffering. Because it's never going to go away. It just will never go away. I mean, that's the problem with suicide, is it doesn't work. The problem with drug addiction or television or alcoholism just doesn't work. It's just sooner or later it runs out and there you are again. You've managed to hide for a really long time and then there it is again. That's why laziness doesn't work or irresponsibility or immaturity just or madness. All the different things that we think of as ways not to have to deal with it. I don't want it to be like this. I want it to be different. I want it to be different. Don't you hear me? I want it to be different, you know. This doesn't make any difference what we think. <laughs> Sooner or later, we just have to face the reality of it. But uh, Kashimoni's story is just so remarkable to contemplate. You can all, those of us who are married, can always devoutly wish that we wake up in the night and see our husbands or our wives floating on the sea. Maybe I too married an avatar and I just don't know it yet, you know? <laughs> you can always hope for it, can't we? <laughs> they um, may, uh, had families of their own, and there's something called the dynastic. There's something that the family calls the dynastic tradition. There's a whole the Shabindu Lahiri, to whom I referred, um, is the heir to the dynastic tradition of the of the Lahiri Mahashaya's line, and he. Um, he inherited from his father the responsibility for uh, carrying on Lahiri's tradition through the family. So both Tinkuri and Dinkuri were saintly souls who had children and disciples. I've never really heard much about any of the rest of it, so I don't think it really got carried on that strongly, except through Shabindu, who does his own ministry. Um, He's the great-grandson of Lahiri. He does his own ministry for Lahiri Mahashaya and teaches Kriya in his own way and claims his lineage through the family. So his name is Shabindu Lahiri. Yeah, quite remarkable. Well, Master gives them credit when he talks about um, 
he talks about going back and having philosophical discussions with his saintly sons, Tinguri and Dinguri. I believe those were his only two children. Once somebody said to me there were other children, but those were the only notable ones, but, but I think those were the only two. So um, then he just talks about, you know, he gives us, Master gives us other pictures of the life of Lahiri. Um, based on the the family friend who stayed there for weeks at a time and talked about how Lahiri would just meditate in his living room all the time and in the middle of the night sadhus and yogis would come and you just have this wonderful uh, sense of the spiritual network in which people uh, sense and hear and know about I mean the world doesn't know he was there because the world didn't care but people who are spiritually inclined discovered him and tell each other and God tells them and, and they just come and find him. And, in, and this is also, you know, this is really when, when Kali Yuga was still more powerful. We've come now into the time when Dwapara is more in the ascendant and so things are more open. But Lahiri received this teaching from Babaji in the Himalayas and the the, the, the openness of it was just beginning. You know, it wasn't at the time yet where it could be advertised. We advertise Kriya Yoga. But but when Lahiri was still coming out of the Kali Yuga time when these teachings had to be protected from the diluting influence of the world. So it was just him in his living room very quietly and in the middle of the night and having his disciples not even speak of what they had learned to anyone. Because it, it was it was more free than having to go all the way to Babaji to get it, but it was far more um, constricted than it finally became when Yogananda got to America. Because we were still in a transition stage, uh, it, um, the plant was younger and it had to be protected a little bit more. But again, you just have this picture of this soul just being there all the time, and the little room in which he sat was. Um, maybe about the size or a little smaller than our small classroom over in the teaching center. A little smaller than that. Not a very big room. Just right off the main courtyard and then there's this little platform area where the Hiri would sit day and night. Just a, 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 like a, a dais, just a, well, just a small platform. Flat. Um, probably it was padded somewhat, but he would just sit there and people would come in and just sit and meditate with him. Just as, as unpretentious and as humble as you could possibly conceive of without being impoverished. And it wasn't impoverished, but it was just totally plain. And, and even the picture of Lahiri Mahashaya, you know, the one picture that he had taken, um, the one there is actually that, I, I've actually learned this, this is all the expose. That's not actually the photograph, that's actually a painting of the photograph that's up there. The actual photograph of Lahiri looks considerably different and when we change our altar we'll put it up there. This is the painting of Lahiri done from the photograph by Sananda Ghosh in 1956 as her switched it and most people just didn't even really know and he wasn't wearing any cloth over him and and when he really had his picture taken he was bare chested and he had on this little dhoti, this little funky sort of dhoti even in the original photograph it's just a a really funky piece of cloth and he's sitting here like this and the cloth that comes between his legs is kind of just all 
kind of shredded and Lahiri's hair is a little like this and and he's like many yogis he's quite big in the chest and uh, like many devotional men he has virtually breasts like a woman and then this is the picture for the ages he just goes sits like this that's really what it looked like and it was just so perfectly unconcerned with anything it was so much so that Esther substituted this <laughs> in which she has this beautiful cloth draped around him and even the cloth that's there is all sort of painted and it all looks a, little, you know, a lot more elegant and so on and he just didn't at all because it just what difference did it make it just didn't make any difference he was just there to give Kriya you know, just to pass that on it's all that mattered it's, it's so it's so marvelous just to take our lives and just bring it back to that just as much as we can you know one photograph for the ages and, and that's just what he looked like pardon me you think that room was open when he was there the gate there's a grate there's a grate there now I mean like an iron sort of door oh yes of course it was open people just came and went what Benicia is saying is that the way the family kept it you go into the courtyard you can stand at the doorway to that room but they don't let you in the room family's a good bit more restrictive than Harry was <laughs> um, then you have a few remarkable stories about Lahiri with this aboya who stopped the train it, it, you just again you, you have also the picture of the fact that the masters involve themselves on levels you don't expect them to involve you you know she doesn't want to wait to see him but there was some, must have been something so powerful in her heart's desire to be with him that Lahiri stopped the train and yet at the same time he teases her oh you could have taken the next train it wasn't necessary for you to be so upset about it but then uh, she wants also for she prays for a child and Lahiri helps her with the child so again it also even though on one hand you know we're talking about this renunciation and this great freedom she asks her guru to help that the child will be okay and he helps that the child is okay because the masters have this great sympathy for our human condition they, they stand in this strange sort of dual relationship to our reality on one hand it, it's just such a dream what difference does it make it's exactly the way Swamiji once described it when a child a, a little child will bring you their dolly you know oh my dolly is unhappy you know because it didn't get to do this and its arm is broken and you just don't say oh come on that's just a stupid piece of fluff you know you pick it up and you say oh here let me help dolly and I'll dress her and that'll make her better now and we'll fix her little arm up is that better darling and the little girl says, oh yeah, I'm so happy now, and you go off. And, and the parent knows it's just been a fantasy, but it isn't a fantasy to the child. It's a real, they're having a real emotional experience in relationship to it. And the master recognizes, just like the parent recognizes, that you'll help the child more by running, running it through than by trying to force the child to a level of understanding the child isn't ready for you know so the disciple comes and says I really want this baby to live and it's her karma to have the baby live so instead of Lahiri saying oh it's all a delusion get over it you know which is which is what pseudo spiritual people do you know one of the 
ways you can tell true teachers from false <coughs> is simple things like kindness and compassion. <coughs> Pretend teachers who are more ego than real often force people to sort of into an unnatural level of renunciation that doesn't, doesn't allow them to grow at their own pace. So again, in a simple story like this, you get a picture of what a true avatar does. It meant a great deal. This poor woman had had eight babies die. And you could see it was just very important, help me. But he, he asked something of her and even broke into the night. Be careful, the lamp's going out. Because what you finally learn from these masters is love and friendship. Just true, just... Um, we have a very hard time appreciating how, how, how much God loves us and how personal and supportive and profoundly concerned about us Divine Mother really is. And so we have these divine examples of true friendship and they show us, they awaken us to the potential of true friendship and, and then we can believe in it and, we, and that gives us the faith to believe in God. That's, that, that's the example of Master's life. That's really been the example of Swami in our lives. I mean, I realized one day that I actually believed in Divine Mother's love because I had experienced Swami Kriyananda's friendship. I mean, I had just experienced someone who, who really would be a friend. And so the, the, the reality of, of, of that kind of love was an experience to me. And therefore, I, I didn't doubt that it, that it could exist. You understand? That's just like, even like a child who has a very difficult upbringing has to put out a lot of willpower to trust the world after that. And so us, as poor, battered little jivas through all of these awful incarnations where everything just falls apart as it always does, you sort of lose hope in, in divine goodness. And the masters come the example of Christ and the story of Yogananda and the inner experience we have to, to touch us on a level that helps us to understand that we can have faith. Does that make sense? And so these little stories, like these little stories of how, how far Lahiri Mahashaya went to just help this woman, who was just, you know, by all apparent standards, just an ordinary woman, but he reached out so far to help her because that's what Divine Mother does. You know? Because it's through that kind of love that we grow, not through um, being rejected. Yes? And to go through all that with the lamp and so on? I mean, you can guess. Um, it was, isn't there, there's a story elsewhere in the autobiography, isn't there, where Lahiri gives Sri Yukteswar the little bit of oil that he has to pour down the throat of his dead friend in order to bring his friend back to life? Sometimes, in order to activate the devotee's will, they give you something to do because it's also in the focus of your own will that the power finds an instrument. And so that must be part of it. So he challenged her and he had to wake her up. Also, it uh, makes a better story. <laughs> I mean, it, it, uh, 
it's illustrative and, and it, you know, it's happening for a purpose. I don't know. In, in, the, in the Bible, um, when Yogananda comments on the different miracles of Jesus, I used to teach this in more detail and had it in my head. I don't now. But Master talks about the different ways in which Jesus healed people. And Master talks about how each one of them was, was healing for a different temperament. Um, the, the servant, the, the soldier comes and says his daughter is sick and Jesus can heal her. He doesn't even have to come. He just can say she is well and the soldier knows that she'll be well because the soldier had so much faith in Christ that it wasn't, it wasn't necessary even to demonstrate it. Um, to, to one sick person, he said, uh, you know, pick up your bed. And uh, Yogananda says that, you know, that, that, that disciple had to put out energy himself. He had to act on the faith that he had. He had to do it himself. He had to show that I believe I am well, I will make this action as distinct from the soldier who just had to be told and knew it was true. Um, and sometimes Christ himself would use strong words, you know, to drive the illness out, rebuke to the fever in the case of the mother of one of his disciples. There was a strong word, that the power to send it out, which all again related to the consciousness of the disciple. So it's, very, it's a very interesting um, study. I mean, you, you just think... So he says one thing or another. You don't think it's meaningful, but in fact, everything is a teaching. That's why Swamiji said for these 50, more than 50 years, he's meditated on everything he can remember that Yogananda said. The word, he said, the, the way he tilted his head, the tone of voice, the look in his eye, because every, every part of it, sometimes years later, he realized it had deep meaning. It wasn't, it wasn't a small thing at all. Swami just wrote recently about... Um, a particular woman that had been a devotee there that Master used to often fiercely criticize in front of Swamiji. I mean, not in front of others, but he would say very, very critical things. And um, Swami said she was attempting to edit Yogananda's work, but she was changing his ideas. She wasn't respecting his ideas. And Yogananda spent a great deal of time telling Swamiji how much he disliked what this woman was doing, even though Master was not at all inclined to speak negatively. But he really wanted Swami to understand. And so, I mean, it wasn't lost on Swami at the time, but as the years have passed and Swami has begun to edit Master's words, he really you know, profoundly hears Yogananda's voice explicitly speaking about what that woman wasn't doing correctly. Because Swami himself was, in a sense, too young to be told how to do it. Because it was just so, it was a task so far beyond Swamiji to actually edit Yogananda's commentaries, even though that was what he was going to do. But yet, Master had to plant in his, his mind, in such a way that he could hear it and understand it, the thoughts that he was going to need later when he was ready. And so you just, you just don't know what's, what's happening. That's why even just an autobiography of a yogi, there's just a sentence here. That's why it's so good This is to read these over and over because you just, all of a sudden you know something you didn't know before because you weren't ready to know it. But there it is waiting for you. Any other questions or thoughts? The last part of this chapter, which I've, I've talked about Tarlanga Swami a number of times, so I, I don't necessarily need to go over it again, but 
The last part of it is just this last whole story about this other yogi Christ of India, which is this remarkable Trilonga Swami and just how completely bizarre he is. And it's also just a great story in the sense that lest we ever take the image of the infinite and try to make him comfortable for us. You know, we have this 300-pound naked man who just wandered around. And, and we, instead of, we, we get this picture of what saints are supposed to look like, and they're supposed to look like movie stars and, you know, be nice in the ways that we want them to be. And instead, you just have this uh, realization that these, these people are so much larger than life and, and so much more eccentric and so much more free. And um, it's it, it necessary to... You can't be a really good devotee unless you have a little a willingness to be a little unconventional. You know, and the more that we can re- rejoice in the unconventionality of it, the more freedom it gives to our own mind to be really creative and original. Whether our lives show or not, within ourselves we have to have this great freedom. And so Trilanda Swami is just this wonderful story of just remarkable eccentricity. Um, what a character. <laughs> What a story. So, that's about all I'm going to say tonight. Anything more? Okay. So I don't know what the next assignment is, but I bet you do. (laughs) And if you don't, you can call and ask somebody. I don't know what comes next. Okay, thank you. Pardon me? So, it's Rama raised from the dead. And Babaji, the Yogi Christ of modern India. Seems worth doing. All right.